0: Ephesians chapter 1, we're looking at verse 9 and 10. And the message is entitled The Blessing of the Gospel. Paul now presents the spiritual blessings by Jesus to further describe the wealth of the believer, as we stated last time from verse 7 to 12. Remember, the Trinity again is involved in the entire process of salvation. Um, it goes from verse 3 to 14, it's, the, it's one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. The Father is indicated in 3 to 6, the Son 7 through 12, and the Holy Spirit 13 and 14. Each one is praised for their part in salvation, 6a, 12, and 14b. We looked at the first blessing revealed associated with Jesus, the doctrine of redemption in verses 7 and 8 last time. And we saw the proclamation of redemption in the first part of 7, the explanation about redemption, the remaining part of 7. And we finished up with the illumination after redemption in verse 8. The second blessing of the doctrine of redemption is now the clarity of revelation characterized by three things also. Let me read here. Verse 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And so, the blessing of the doctrine of redemption is the clarity of revelation. And it's characterized by the following. First, we have the mode of the divine revelation in the beginning of nine. The mode. Second, we have the manner of divine revelation in the rest of nine. And thirdly, we have the measure of the divine revelation. It begins with the mode of the divine revelation. Listen to his words having made known to us the mystery of his will. The Apostle Paul is still dealing with the riches of the grace of Jesus at the end of 7 and verse 8. Remember, the entire section speaks of Jesus from 7 to 12. The believer, the one who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, chapter 1 verse 3 tells us. That's who he's talking about, you and I, and all those that come to Christ. Paul said the grace of Jesus is able to save and enable us to live the Christian life. In those verses, it has more than sufficient capacity to work on our behalf. Any failure is due to us, not to Jesus. Now Paul said also that the grace of Jesus is made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. And we said this abounding wisdom is qualified all. Each, any, every kind of wisdom has been provided for the believer to make godly judgments, to live out that redeemed life by divine insight. You stop and think of your life and how you see things and how... You perceive things, how you judge things, and how you see things clearly now that you're a Christian and you're growing in the grace and the Word of God than then, then you did before you were a Christian. You only had ethical and moral standards, but they were subject to the culture. But with the gospel, it transcends culture. Your standards are consistent. They don't fluctuate. They don't deviate. They don't alter. It makes you stable. Makes you strong. We said prudence means the ability to conduct ourselves wisely regarding that redeemed life. A whole different life. And it's all due to God's grace. Richness of His grace. Now notice the Apostle Paul declared that through this abounding wisdom and prudence, the riches of His grace, Jesus revealed to us, the mystery of his will. Lensky, the Greek scholar, says, quote, The principle or the participle having made known is a model and modifies, made to abound in verse 8. So in other words, it just reflects back, it points to it. The true wisdom is knowing the mystery of his will. That's the true wisdom what He actually willed. The participle's error is active, ongoing. You see, Jesus alone, notice, is the source of the revealer of the mystery of His will. If Jesus wouldn't have revealed His will, we'd be guessing. Sometimes people will ask questions uh, about things that are not in the Bible. I say, I don't know. You don't know? No, because the Bible doesn't say nothing. And if I say something, it's only my opinion. The only thing I can be certain about that is absolute truth is what God has revealed about himself, sin, Satan, or the world. Apart from that, it's just opinion. Now, the mystery belongs to his will. What one wishes or determines to be done. And his will is to reveal the mystery. The word known means to become known. In other words, God communicated something and it was understood and recognized and identified. Uh, He's going to identify what it is and we'll unveil it here. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. It says, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. So he's already making reference to what he said in chapter 1 we're studying and we're going to find that as the gospel. Look at verse 5 of the same chapter, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it now has been revealed by the Spirit and his holy apostles and prophets. He does the same thing in 10. He does it in 619 and 621. Known. The gospel. The word mystery should not be understood as a mystery novel. The word is mysterium, that which is hidden, something undisclosed. The derivative or the root word is the word muo. It means to shut the mouth. In other words, hidden, unknown. The word was used by pagan religions for the secret initiatory rites of the mystery cults that existed in that day. And only the elite understood those rights and they weren't to dispel them or disclose them to anybody else. Now Paul uses the word to mean just the opposite of something hidden as these cults. These are words that were used in his day. He uses it for something previously hidden, but now made known, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see... All the prophets of the Old Testament, they were pointing to Messiah. But what the gospel reveals was not fully disclosed or very clear until it came in the New Testament. The word appears 27 times in the New Testament. Not once is it used for something secret or unknown. In fact, the word is used five more times in the letter to the Ephesians, identifying for us what this revealed mystery is, namely the gospel. Listen to Ephesians 3, 3 and 4, says how that by revelation he made known to us the mystery as uh, I have briefly written already, in which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now the commentary is in verse 5, that next verse which in other ages was not known uh, to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit and the holy apostles and prophets. So something previously hidden now made known. In 3.9, it says, And to make all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. The sister epistle. Colossians 1 25 and 26 says it says the same thing it was hidden from time and people ages and people until the New Testament Ephesians 5:32 this is the great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church the product of the gospel Ephesians 619 says and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That which was previously hidden unknown, now made very clear and very known by revelation. Man did not invent the gospel. It was imparted to man. It was revealed by God. Remember, Jesus praised the Father in Luke ten twenty one, Lord of heaven and earth. He said, I praise you and I thank you for hiding the revelation from wise and prudent and revealing it to babes because it seems good in your sight. To the religious rulers, to the proud, to the arrogant. He saw their hard heart and their arrogance and he gave them blindness. But to those who were open, he revealed the gospel. Those that exalt themselves, he'll humble them. Those that humble themselves, he'll be exalted. Those who fall on the rock will be broken, but those who the rock falls on will be crushed. It's always a choice. We must always keep in mind and heart that it is by virtue of the riches of God's grace that Paul has mentioned here, that we are able to understand the gospel endowed with knowledge, wisdom, and prudence. not at any time is it due to our natural intellectual ability. None of us in this room ever understood the gospel before we repented from our sins. In fact, some of us may have mocked the gospel... Some of us made fun of Christians. It didn't make sense to us. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, because they were all caught up in human wisdom and bringing it into the church. And I, brethren, I, uh, when I came to you, I did not come in with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God. It's always an amazing thing to see the miracle happen all the time when you're preaching or teaching. And God is dealing with people's heart. And you're unaware of it. But then they open their heart and they get born again. And God just nails them and makes that gospel so real, so clear. And for the first time in their life, they see themselves that they really are separated from God. Under God's wrath. But then God opens their heart to the love of God. That He can save them. That He can forgive them. And that's the greatest miracle that can ever happen. Ever. There are several things identified as a mystery that were kept secret, but fully revealed in the New Testament as part of the gospel of Jesus. Let me give you some of these. Um, In Matthew 13 35, the disciples were asking Jesus um, why he spoke to them in parables. And in that section, he's talking about the kingdom parables. And, uh, and he says in, in Matthew 13, 11, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries, say more mysterion, of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, when you first read that, you think that God has blinded some and chosen not to, to be born again. And, and it kind of falls in line with the Calvinistic doctrine, but he's not saying that. He's not saying that He chose some to be saved and chosen some not to be saved. He's saying He he opens the heart and the eyes of those who are willing to be opened, those who are hardened. He closes their eyes. He, He respects their choice. That's what He's saying. Because if God chose one over the other when they both deserve hell, then God would be unjust. He'd be unholy. He couldn't be good. In fact, the commentary comes in Matthew thirteen thirty five, where he says um, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 are parables and truths in those parables that were kept secret before the New Testament. It gives you the age of grace. They're key. Paul, again, in Romans eleven twenty five. there's another mystery that was hidden. Listen. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant about this mystery, mysterion, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. So in other words, that Israel is going to be put aside, given over to judgment, blindness spiritually would come upon her, and God would be choosing a bride for himself, and when God is through with his bride, then he will deal with Israel once again. That was never seen in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New. Another one, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. Paul declares, for the mystery, mysterion, of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. It's talking about the restraining force that's holding back the appearing of the Antichrist. The church. That was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. We shall be caught up, harpazo, to the air. John in Revelation one twenty, says, The mystery, mysterion of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, Jesus speaking. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So, here again. Um... It was um, secret in the past, but now made known. Very clear in the New Testament. One more in Revelation 17.5, John declares, And on the forehead a name was written, her forehead, Mystery Babylon, the great, the harlot of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17.5. That which began in the Tower of Babel, that which moved all the way through the Old Testament, that which opposed God in religious form, is the ultimate force against Christ prior to his return through the religions and the, and the church that is going to be embraced by the world and the Antichrist. You see, what we're talking about here is the Word of God, it's inerrant and infallible, the gospel. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, powerful doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished into every good work. In Second Peter one nineteen through twenty one, that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse. It didn't come from their own origin. But as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you have um, you have the revelation of God's Word, inerrant and infallible. In 2 Peter, you have the inspiration that is recorded without error in its original autographs. So what we have is the Word of God. It has to be both inerrant and infallible. Completely. The Word of God. And so the mode of the divine revelation is through... The Gospel of Christ. Nor, secondly, comes the manner of the divine revelation, the second part of nine. The Apostle Paul revealed Jesus imparted the revelation of the Gospel to man, sovereignly. Listen to his words: according to his good pleasure. The sovereignty of God is described by this phrase: according to his good pleasure. Jesus was not compelled or obligated, but he did this according to his good pleasure. Expressing his kind intent, his delight, and satisfaction of desire. As he has said it already in verse 5. When we touched on the Father. His sovereignty is in conformity to his nature and filled with what is good. So the sovereign direction, decision, and desire of God always has to do with with the good for you and I. That which is good for a sinner. God has nothing bad for mankind. God judges only when man resists the grace of God. It's a strange way for him to, to do business, so to speak. Isaiah says, to judge. He much rather forgive and be gracious. The second person of the Godhead is the epitome Of love and holiness, possessing the perfection of every attribute, unable to make a mistake or do anything evil. And yet, the Calvinistic theology does not dare to ascribe to God the fall, the evil of the world, that God decreed the fall. Really? Wow. Then why did God judge Adam and Eve if God's responsible for the fall? If he is, then he's not very fair, very loving, very holy. That's not the God of my Bible. The phrase good pleasure appears nine times in the New Testament. Two times here in Ephesians, verse 5, and here in verse 9. You see, the good pleasure of Jesus was to impart the revelation of the gospel, to communicate to sinful man his need to be saved by grace. Through the provisions of His atonement. God loves us so much. God has such compassion towards us. God, God just wants to forgive us so much. That He went out of His way to communicate this gospel. By sending His Son in the flesh. I mean, He's altogether different than us. <laughs> when you stop and think of the type of love that He has for us. Remember, Jesus gave the three-part parable we just studied last Sunday when the Pharisees and the scribes were murmuring against Jesus because he was receiving sinners and eating with them and forgiving them. And so the, the first part of the parable was the lost sheep that the shepherd were not to find. The second was the lost coin that the woman was seeking and found. And then the third part of the parable is the two lost sons that were both lost. One left the father's house, returned, saved, and the other one remained lost within the father's house. The punchline to all three parts of that one parable is joy in heaven over the repentance of one sinner. And how often the parable of the prodigal son, which is called, i rather call the the parable of the two lost sons, has nothing to do with a Christian walking away and if they're really born again, they'll always come back. That's foreign to the text. He was never born again. The punchline on all three parts of it is joy in heaven over one sinner when they repent. And yet that parable is always taught separate from the other two to teach that if you're really a Christian and you walk away or your children have accepted Christ, they'll always come back. They're smoking something. It says nothing of the kind. And yet pastors and radio teachers do it all the time. It's a violation to the text. The origin of God's good pleasure, notice, is His will. The word will, as we have stated, means what one wishes or determines to be done now some people don't like that but yet they want God to respect their will if God gives you a free will why shouldn't God have a free will after all we're created after his image and likeness not the reverse (laughs) God is self-determining he does as he wills when he wills but it's always good so man says, "I don't want to. I don't want to hear the gospel. I don't want to be saved." Well, God says, "Okay, I'll respect your choice. I'll, I'll respect your will." And then the consequences come. They say, well, why didn't God stop me? Well, wait a minute. You say you didn't want him, right? So which way you want Him? Either you want him to intervene and stop you, or you want him. You want him to force you, or you want him to respect your will. Which way you want it? God forces no one. The word expressed the purpose. Choice and inclination of God. His self-determination. Listen. In verse 11 and 12 of this chapter, when we get to it, we'll deal with it in depth. It says, "In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He has all these attributes to perfection. He cannot make a mistake. He knows the end from the beginning. He saw you before you were even born. He saw you as we were being born. He, he sees you all at the same time, even a trillion years into eternity. And for Him, there's no problem. When you call upon Him at 3 in the morning, when you're just going through a difficult time and 10 million other people are doing at the same time, Jesus never says, hang on a second, wait a minute, I'm getting confused. Who are you first? There. He hears everybody at the same time. Now you explain that to me. Hmm. Notice the apostle Paul confirmed the imparting of the revelation of the gospel by Jesus as sovereignly determined by his own doing. He confirms it now. Listen to the words. Which he purposed in himself. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead in the work of salvation, took this on Himself to bring it to pass. Literally, said before Him, this is the middle voice, we're told, by the Greek scholars, in Himself as the doer. The person does it Himself in the middle voice. The verb purposed is also reflexive, pointing back to Jesus being the doer, so it's a double confirmation. Jesus said this, as his good and gracious pleasure before himself in order to carry it into effect. To bring it to pass. Remember, Jesus was the promised seed of the woman to be virgin born, Genesis 3.17, Isaiah 14, Matthew one twenty three. Jesus was to be the sin bearer of the world. Bearing our grief and carrying our sorrows. He was esteemed, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. He took it on himself. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him to be sinful as a new no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins alone, but the whole world. Wow. Who is sufficient for these things? Jesus is. Jesus was to be born in a certain city. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth is from of all, from everlasting, from the vanishing point, (laughs) the Eternal One. Micah 5, 2. These things and many more Well over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in his first coming. He purposed in himself. Even fulfilling them while he was dead. He was the message. This is the message of Jesus to his 12 apostles. Revealing to them he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Sent by the Father to save sinners. And so has it been for every generation since. The message has never changed, ladies and gentlemen. Culture changes, nations change, powers change, but the gospel has never changed. Now, people have tried to change it, the emergent church is trying to change it, but they won't succeed. Because Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The phrase, notice, in himself, indicates Jesus. The entire section identifies him. In verse 7, his blood, his grace. In verse 8, he made. Verse 9, his will, his pur- purpose, in him. It's all wrapped up in him. And then notice, the sovereignty of God means he can do as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills, yet he will never violate any of his attributes or the free will of man. Wouldn't you love to have this attribute? That no matter what you did, it was always right? (laughs) You're just sovereign. The sovereignty of God operates and is exercised as perfect wisdom and harmony and as a result of all his attributes that are unto perfection. All we can do is explain it. We can't understand it to its full end. We're fallen. We're limited. We're finite. He's infinite. God's sovereignty makes all the right decisions. And perfect justice having the benefit of man in mind all the time. Now, from the perspective of man, the non-believer looks upon the the judgment of God in the flood. And they conclude that if that's the God of the Bible, they don't want nothing to do with him. Because after all, they would never kill a whole world because they love mankind. So what they're saying is that they're more compassionate than God. They're more just than God. They know better than God. (laughs) Arrogance. Sovereignty like the foreknowledge of God never violates man's free will. He gave Adam and Eve a free will to choose and he held them accountable for their choices in Genesis 3 holy and just and good. The sovereignty of God towards Esau and Jacob refers to the nation of Edom and Israel, not individual election in Romans 8, 11 through 16. So it has nothing to do with favoritism or injustice. The sovereignty of God towards Pharaoh was just. As he hardened his own heart over and over again. And then God says, I will respect your choice. Now I will strengthen your heart in your hardening against me. And I will bring judgment upon you because that's what you have chosen. Romans eight seventeen through 18. But from the natural human perspective to look upon that, man exalts himself and says, well, that's, that isn't very nice. They exalt themselves above God because they say, "Well, I, I, I wouldn't have destroyed everybody in Egypt. The firstborn, I would never kill children." God sends Israel in to wipe out everybody in the land. They say, "Oh, I, that's the type of God. I can't, I can't, I, I can't believe in God like that." No, but you can believe in a God that you create that's permissive, and you can commit adultery, fornication, get loaded, steal, and and and, and you're still going to go to heaven, right? <laughs> So we create God in our own image, after our own likeness. Because we we reject what God records and reveals about Himself, who He is. The sovereignty of God never excludes the responsibility of man to respond to God. Again, there's a choice. So, seeing that God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, possessing foreknowledge the epitome of perfect wisdom that he is eternal infinite immutable should his sovereignty worry us that it might be unfair we would be foolish <laughs> how many of you trust all of that fast typing and putting it on your computer and think your computer is going to make a mistake where they're going to file these things. So you trust your computer more than you do God. So your computer is, is, is more infallible than God. Amazing. Nebuchadnezzar put it this way, after he regained his sanity, after God humbled him for a few seasons as an animal, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. (laughs) He was a hard nut to crack, but he cracked. But God didn't force him to crack. He came to His senses like that lost son that left and was feeding pigs and was salivating over the pig's food. He was so hungry. And he says, I will rise up and I will go to my father's house. I say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your higher servants. Realizing that he had put himself in that desperate and, and, and godless condition. And he had bought on himself and didn't blame anybody else and believed that God could forgive him. It's by the conviction of the Spirit of God. It's a humbling of oneself to acknowledge one's sinfulness and calling upon God in repentance. There are five great commissions, as you know, in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 19-20 says, but Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. The other Gospels have it too. Mark sixteen fifteen through 16 Luke 24, 46-48. John twenty twenty one through twenty three, and the last one you have in the book of Acts, Acts one eight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Five great commissions: where to go. In Matthew, it's in the participle. There was never any doubt of us not going. It says, "In your going, when you go." <laughs> We go because God has sent us and because the gospel communicates and convicts men and women of being lost. And that's how people get saved. You remove the gospel, you remove repentance, you remove sin, you remove all that the gospel contains and then you have just what the emergent church does. We just dialogue, we just talk. We just have a teaching. But they don't call it gospel. They don't talk about sin. In fact, they don't even want to call us a church. They say we have one or two campuses. That's the new phraseology. We have two campuses. Campus, what are you, a college? Are you a school? What are you? You're a church. Are you Christian? You're a church. Redefining the church. Redefining Christianity. Redefining the Bible. They won't succeed. Trust me. God's word has broken many a hammers. This is God's amble. <laughs> the gospel has been proclaimed since the day of John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3.2. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 4.17. The apostle Peter preached to those at Pentecost repent acts 238 paul preached the gospel of repentance constantly throughout the book of acts the gospel of repentance has gone out for 2000 years saving people and it will continue to be proclaimed by those who are faithful until the lord's return because it is the only hope for lost man no other The gospel is the only hope for sinners before they die. The gospel is to be preached to all people. It's to be preached everywhere. At all times. With great urgency. And with great boldness. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith A just shall live by faith. Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Bold, not ashamed. Hmm. The manner of the divine revelation is by the sovereignty of God. Absolute sovereignty. Notice thirdly in verse 10. The measure of the divine revelation is given to us. The Apostle Paul declared the goal of revealing the gospel was to reveal Jew and Gentile to be one in Christ. Wow, you talk about a new revelation. It was so new, it insulted the Jew. The Pharisees, the scribes. We, one with Gentiles, get out of town. Listen to the words that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Jesus said the good, his good pleasure and purpose in himself to carry out the administration of making all sinners one in Christ. The word dispensation is made up of two words. Oikos, which means house, and nomos, which means law. The compound word means a management of a household or stewardship. Steward who managed the house of his master. Jesus purposed himself for the administration of this goal. The administration is the good pleasure and the mystery of his will which is the carrying out of the gospel to save sinners. Notice the specific time of the dispensation is indicated. The fullness of the time. The fullness word there, plemora, it means the full or complete, the sum total. And the word times is the word kairos. It means a particular time, not the usual word for chronological time, chronos. Linear time. But a specific time, like you would use a specific time like your birthday, or, um, or uh, a vacation, or summer, or winter, um, or an anniversary. It's a particular time. The length is not the importance, but it's, it's specific. And it's in the plural. The idea behind the fullness of times... In context here, means the church age. The fulfillment and climax of the times administered by God in times past until Jesus came. Galatians 4 4 and 5 says this, listen. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. When the fullness of time God had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman. Right on time, as it was prophesied. Right on time when Rome was the the world. When Rome was uh, the Pax Romana, the peace, there was no war. Right when the roads were all over, people could travel safe. Right when one language was the language of all the world as known then, Greek. Roads, a language, peace. (laughs) Gospel goes all over the world. (laughs) Right on time. Some men have marked out the varieties or the various dispensations of God from the beginning. Let me just give them to you. There's seven. Usually they're divided into seven. There's some that will subdivide with some one or two. The dispensation of innocence is when Adam and Eve lived in the garden prior to the fall. Then there's a the dispensation of conscience after the fall and the expulsion from the garden until the flood. Then you have the dispensation of government. This is the third one. When Noah received the covenant from God and human government in chapter 9. As he got off the boat. The fourth dispensation is that of promise. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-7. The fifth dispensation is that of law. When God gave the law of Moses to or to Moses at Mount Sinai. The sixth dispensation is that of grace. When God sent his son to die for the world to save sinners, to build his church, and to remove her prior to the seven-year tribulation that will come. The dispensation of grace is the dispensation of the fullness of time that he's referring to here. Then the seventh and last dispensation is the dispensation of the kingdom. When Jesus will set up the kingdom on the earth right after his second coming. Now, notice the goal that he purposed was to make Jew and Gentile one. He says, might gather together in one all things in Christ. The phrase gathered together means to sum up or to bring to a head. The word is used of a collection and presenting things as a whole, like um, a column of figures and equating the sum total of it, like an addition. The phrase is found only one other time in the New Testament. In uh, Romans 13.9. Uh, where Paul there is speaking. Uh, about the commandments. And he says. Are all They are all summed up in this. The word summed up is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So all the ten, you know, the commandments. Are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first one love God. Then the second tablet summed up. Love me your neighbor. Now. Notice the internal evidence of the epistle as we'll see reveals the goal of the gospel to make Jew and Gentile one in Christ as well as the sister epistle, Colossians, because it was written at the same time. Look at Ephesians 2. And let me just read 11 on down. Listen to what it says. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by which is called circumcision, so Gentile and Jew, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. There's the darkest words, the darkest verse in the Bible of you and I before Christ. Without God. Without hope in the world. But, Now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace and has made us both one, both one Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of partition or separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is in the law of commandments, contained in ordinances as to create in him one new man, Jew and Gentile, one new man. From the two, thus making peace. And that he might recognize them both to God, or reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who were near, far off are the Gentile; those near are the Jew. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile. Look at 3, chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation, just what we're talking about here, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand and acknowledge the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Jew and Gentile one. That was unheard of. That was offensive to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the righteous, self-righteous Jews. Jesus has all authority and power over everything as the head of everything, Paul is telling us. The word all means every, any, whatever, and whosoever. In fact, in chapter 1 there, verse 21 to 23, it says, far above all principalities and powers, those are angels and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age the age of grace but also that which is to come the thousand year reign and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all look at Ephesians 4.15 but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ look at 523 for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body if you move over to colossians the sister epistle over a couple of books colossians 118 he says and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Colossians two ten. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, both good and evil angels. He is above them all. Hebrews says he didn't put this world in subjection to the angels. They're just ministering spirits to the earth of salvation. Colossians 2.19 says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So Christ is the head. Everything is held together by Him. Everything is subject to Him. That's the good news of the gospel. And then notice, the Apostle Paul declared the goal of revealing the gospel was to reveal that the dispensation of Jew and Gentile being one in Christ will come to a close. Look at the words. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Right now, we only see here on earth. But there's going to come a time when both heaven and earth become one. This indicates the submission of all things into him and in him. Christ both in heaven and on earth, which we do not see them now in the age of grace or the church. Man is still in rebellion against God. The governments of the world are in rebellion against God. Satan blinds people against the gospel. He holds him captive, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 2 Timothy 2.26. He's the God of this world. This identifies the kingdom age, when Jesus reigns on the earth. We, the church, will return in the battle of Armageddon, as you know, to set up the kingdom and to reign with Jesus Christ. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The thousand-year reign the animal kingdom will go back to prior to the fall. But those who didn't take the mark during the great tribulation, they will, allow, they will be allowed to go into, into the kingdom age. But they will serve Israel. And Satan will be bound for a thousand years. But at the end, he will be released and he will have his last fling of rebellion. And in spite of Jesus reigning on the earth and having such a perfect government, people will still rebel. Not us, we're glorified, we're reigning, but those who have entered the kingdom and repopulate the earth. So much for the psychologists that it's the environment. It's not the environment, it's the heart. Genesis 6, 5, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. It's evil and wicked continually. The kingdom age is for the remnant of Israel, Romans 11, Revelation 12. Israel, the remnant. The Gentiles will serve the Jews if you were with us in our series on the Millennial Kingdom. The Gentiles will serve the Jews during that thousand years. Israel will gain all the territory promised to her. All the promises. Listen to the picture of heaven as we are raptured and the tribulation begins. Revelation 5, 9-13 through 13 says, And they sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seal, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and such as in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Only when Jesus returns will this be true on earth. While this is the cry in heaven when we're before Him, there still has to go seven years tribulation before it takes place on earth. Many today teach replacement theology that God is through with Israel and that that the church is Israel, spiritual Israel. Not so. You must make the distinction between the wife of Yahweh that's been put away by divorce, Israel for her spiritual adultery and the wife who is a virgin looking for a wedding. There's a big difference. Ephesians 5.26, the bride of Christ. The remnant of Israel is the root. We are the wild olive branch brought in, Romans eleven seventeen through 20 says. So we shouldn't boast. The age of grace, the church has been going on for about 1981 years. And um, as we look, I think that it's going to close soon. No one knows the day of the hour, but as I look at the world and I see everything lining up, as I see the desire for the world to be ecumenical, one, one bank, one, one money, uh, one type of government, uh, all this, you see it coming down. As you see it become more anti-Christ and anti-God and anti-Christian. We will take every opportunity to preach the gospel while well, his day, because there will come a time when we can't preach, we'll be gone. We want to remain true to the gospel, not watering it down, not yielding to culture, the politically correctness. We want to be found faithful, preaching with clear distinction of the gospel. When the Lord returns for us. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Galatians 6.15 There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're one in Christ Jesus. One day, we will bow to Jesus. Face to face because we love Him so. Right now, people are bowing by choice to grace. But one day, all will bow by force. In um, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty three through 28 says, But each one is in His order. Speaking about the resurrection. Christ the first fruits; After that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus will turn it to the Father after the thousand year reign when he puts an end of all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are put under his feet it is evident that he who put all things under his of under him is accepted now When all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So apparently after the thousand year reign, when we enter the the eternal aspect of the kingdom, God the Father, Jesus will be subject to him in a way that we don't understand but the Trinity will not be necessary as we know it for salvation because we'll enter eternity and, and salvation won't be needed there. So that's after the thousand-year reign. Philippians uh, 2, 9, and 10 says that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, it's by your choice. When God returns, it's by force, under judgment. Peter puts it this way, and let me close with this, 2 Peter three ten through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away in great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This happens after the thousand years, after the white throne judgment. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. That is what we're looking for. I'm not looking for Antichrist, I'm looking for Jesus Christ. The measure of the divine revelation is that all must must, and will be subject in the future to Christ. I don't know where you're at tonight. If you haven't bowed your knee, then you have heard the gospel tonight. And God loves you so much, He wants you to repent so He can forgive you. Here you have the second blessing of the doctrine of redemption. It's the clarity of revelation. The mode of the divine revelation was through the gospel of Christ. The manner of the divine revelation was by the sovereignty of Christ. And the measure of the divine revelation was that all must come and will be subject in the future to Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness, Lord. We pray you continue to minister to our hearts. We thank you for your word. And so, Lord, um, we pray for anyone who might be here who doesn't know you or maybe over the Internet, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts how much you love them and how you want to save them, Lord. If you don't know Christ and God has ministered to your heart, This is the prayer of repentance. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He will save you right now, right where you sit. You can repeat it if you want. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.